Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Dana Stern, MD of Israel's Yes Studios, about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the business and the challenge of getting back into production without insurance. Nadine Marsh-Edwards and Amanda Jenks, co-founders of independent producer Greenacre Films, discuss their recent series of race-themed short films for UK network ITV. And Stars veteran Gene George talks about establishing his own TV movie distribution business, California-based Tessera Entertainment. Israel's Yes Studios has been back in production for several months, with the third season of Netflix drama Shistel and new period series The Beauty Queen of Israel, both among the titles filming. Dana Stern, MD of the producer-distributor, spoke with Michael Pickard about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the business, the challenge of getting back to work without insurance, and why there are more questions than answers facing the industry moving forwards. Well, first, we all went into a state of shock, right? Existential shock, just like everybody, (laughs) which is, I think, everybody was kind of feeling that in our industry a little bit, like, where's our place in the world? What's our role? (laughs) But, um, and everything shut down almost immediately within a week, you know, every day, it was like a production was, it was first, it was 100 people, then the next day it was 50 people, then it was 20 people, then it was, you know, nobody, Anyway, that battle. Um, so we started going back into production. Um, I think it was the end of June. First thing we did is finish and basically wrap up a couple of shows that were stuck that we had, you know, a few days or a few weeks left. So those were the first ones to wrap. We did one and finished it and just getting the first edits in called The Chef, a new series for us. And that literally had a week left and it was just devastating. That now wrapped, that's in post. Uh, we'll be sending that out soon. It's a nice drama about a guy who finds himself in his 40s, no job, and takes a takes on a role as a lowly cook, kind of a line cook in a prestigious restaurant. It's based on the experience of the writer and director who actually worked as a chef when he couldn't find another job. So that's a little one. And then everything else is kind of ramped up in late June, early July, basically things that we're supposed to shoot during the spring. And we never, ever want to shoot a drama in the summer here because it's, it's unbearably hot, especially for a show like Shtisa, which they're all, you know, wearing ultra-Orthodox long sleeve coats and, and it's very confined spaces because it's all interior. Most of it is interiors, it's their apartment. So we never wanted to get to August and shoot, but here we are. So it's, it's all, you know, I'm knocking on wood. There's a wooden table. It's gone well. We started and finished an entire show post-COVID already. Um, Kind of called the bank. It's a really, really good kind of event series based on true stories. Um, it's the first series we've ever done, and one of the very, very few in the country that's kind of a ripped from the headline based on actual events. Most of what we do is inspired by somebody's experience or you know totally fictionalized. This is based on a real story uh, that happened in 2002, where a woman who was a bank teller, basically embezzled the entire fortune of a bank here, over a quarter of a billion shekels. And she did that in order to help her brother, who was a gambler. In doing that, she basically unwittingly funded the entire Israeli underworld for many, many years to come. Before that, we have very little organized crime and and no violent crime. So people were getting shot. You didn't have to look under, you know, under your car, if you're obviously in a criminal. There's none of that. And the money that was funneled from this bank 
to this day, you know, we're nearly 20 years, we're 18 years after the fact, has been used to weaponize and arm the Israeli underworld. So it's, it's an amazing story about family. And the father actually pressured her to do it, to help the brother. The brother is the important one in the family. She was kind of disposable. So that one started and finished post-COVID. So it was a really tight shoot. And that finished August 11th. And you know how you're like, you don't want to talk about things so long as they're still being worked on. You don't want to jinx anything. It's weird. We've all become so superstitious. Because we have no insurance. None of this is insurable. We're, we're not like in the UK where there's government funds. And, you know, other countries that have actually stepped up and said, all right, you know, we will help. We're all like going on a prayer here. And Shtisel obviously started and is wrapping up on the shoot. So Shtisel 3 has been happening. And there it's been, there's a lot of older actors on that show as well. So it's been slower. Everything's more careful. There's pause, not no sets visit. It's been really kind of sequestered. We've been trying to keep it that way, but that's, wrapping and what else we started oh and the beauty queen of jerusalem which is amazing 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 i can't i can't talk about that show without smiling it's so gorgeous and so different and it's just everything about it is like magic and that's going to be a really really long shoot because it's a big 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 period piece and that um, that started in early august that goes on all the way through the end of the year it's based on a book you know things we've never ever done so it's based on a book it's period it's a pre you know, order of multiple, multiple episodes. It's like nothing we've ever committed to on this scale. And it's got known actors and actors that you just know are going to be overnight sensations here. You just know it. You just see them and you're like, okay, I remember you when you had, you know, 60, 600 followers on Instagram. And when we're done, you'll have 600, you know, like that. And on the distribution, it's been interesting because for us, we didn't have anything new since last year, really. So at the last drama that we had was probably that we launched was last October and everything else kind of got pushed. <laughs> um, so it's been, so we're, we were kind of trying to get what we have out there quickly and hopefully there's still a need and people are still kind of looking at their schedules and haven't filled up with their own productions yet or other countries aren't as quick and haven't started. And so hopefully there's still opportunities, but I mean, Israeli drama has done really well um, with two big, big sales during the pandemic, but both to the same buyer, to Apple Plus, and understandably because they're the ones without a library, really, and without acquisitions. So it's not like, you know, a Netflix or an Amazon where there's a breadth and depth of library there and, and a lot of kind of relationships that were entrenched and existed. Uh, but it's great. It's a, I'm excited for them. I think uh, Tehran launches September 25th. And a lot of my friends worked on that. So I'm very, very happy for them. I hope it does really well because that always helps all of us. So we're all like walking in the footsteps of each other. And what else? We've used the pandemic to develop like everybody. Out of Four is being written as we speak. That's pretty good. Uh, we have a new series from Donna DC's who did On the Spectrum. So that's finally writing has been done. So that's going to be a co-production with Germany. Um, so it's, it, there's been a lot of work on the development side and we've got a whole bunch of new projects, you know, some documentaries, you know, we've used the time. Once we got out, I think of the initial shock. I, I felt like I walked into a wall. I just couldn't, you know, nothing was, it was, it was just a weird sensation and nothing seemed important, but now it does. And people have been watching more television than ever and more hours of television and more TikTok and more YouTube and all of it. 
So it's been it's been interesting. So I mean, you, you talked about development there. I mean, how yeah. has the business had to change in any way to to kind of remain, I guess, agile in these new surroundings? Well, you know. Well, there's, I mean, I think we're all kind of going through these waves and we certainly had a lot of conversations between us of how to treat COVID on screen, what kind of programming to make, how to represent, you know, a pandemic or COVID. And if at all, you know, do we write it in now to everything or do, do we just kind of do what we've always done and just deal with it on a purely, you know, production, physical production perspective and that's it? Or, you know, is this something we're going to have to live with? And then what does life look like? And obviously there's an entire question of what are people going to want to watch? Because ultimately that's the only thing that matters. Um, Not what the executive thinks, but what are people going to respond to? And immediately it was like, you know, it's all going to be escapism. It's all going to be, you know, it's going to be light. It's going to be funny. Uh, I'm not sure of that anymore. That was like the brief initially. I think that maybe this is why I'm so excited about the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. Because it's 1917. (laughs) You don't have to worry you don't have to worry about COVID. You know, it's just, uh, I've seen two films now uh, this past week. One had like a big crowd scene, huge, like a big Hollywood film. And I was like, the only thing my mind was so programmed to go, where, where are their masks? It's weird. So these are all things that people are going to go through as, you know, things kind of come up. But there's no one answer and there's never going to be a one answer. And I've seen some good shows kind of that were filmed during COVID. And then um, that you're looking at now that you don't want to watch anymore, that you're like enough. Personally, I've been watching a lot of reality, which is not really my thing, but I just feel like it doesn't take much for me to think about that and, and series in French because I'm working on my French now. And, and with so many shows, you know, back in production, I mean, can you just oh. tell us a bit about what life is like on set now? Because you're working yeah. without insurance, which is obviously a huge risk for you and the broadcaster. But then, yeah. you know, it's, you for, it's all of them. I mean, it's the, produ- the production, the producers, uh, the studio, the platform, you know, everybody's. We've had shows that were stopped and we had people, but mostly, actually not mostly, all of them are kids and family where the actors um, and I'm trying not to generalize, but, but it has happened uh, where the actors are much, much younger, our late teens, early twenties. Um, so there we had a lot, we haven't had anyone sick, but we have had a lot of people that had to go into that were around people that were sick and had to be quarantined. And so we had stoppage and we did, and where we didn't stop, there was a ton of reworking the boards and you know writing people in and out and and just changing schedules that part of it is not fun so it has happened it hasn't happened on the dramas and yet hopefully never people have been really responsible i have to say really really they've been good about keeping so the way we've structured it and it's really up to each individual producer and production but we're trying to you know very limited set visits everybody that's off camera has masks there's somebody always there shoot, kind of shouting at people and reminding them, don't go near the actors without a mask. Don't go near the director without a mask. But every time somebody goes next to an actor, there's somebody there saying, put a mask on, put a mask on, put a mask on. And we've spaced out wardrobe, makeup, all of that is very, sp- we used to be, you know, we shoot cheap. So everything's kind of crowded and a little haphazard. So we've gotten trailers now for a lot of productions and people are spacing out and the shoot days are much, much longer. Everything takes more time. You don't want to overload. You know, it's things like taxis. It used to be like one taxi would take everyone in the morning to the set. Now you have to have separate. So all of that is expensive and all of that is adding up. 
um, here. We haven't had, and we couldn't afford, I think, to do like entire production bubbles like they're doing in some countries, like they're doing in Germany, um, certainly in the US, they're doing them in the UK, where everybody you know stays in a hotel, nobody's in, nobody's out, they stay away from their families. We haven't been able to do that. It's impractical to do that in a small, small country anyway. And I also think there's not enough money in, in the business for people to kind of say, okay, I'm not going to see you know my family for six or eight or 10 weeks. It's, it's not that worthwhile. And also everybody's so close physically, so small, that it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so those are the things that have kind of changed. Um, also, you know, catering, I mean, people eat over a longer period of time. All this stuff that used to be like an opportunity for people to come together has been really, really spaced out. And everything just takes longer. And we've added days to every single one of our shows. Do you see things improving a bit? I guess what what's your kind of outlook on on how the industry is shaping up at the moment and and where it might lead to? We're all part of a huge shift that's happening anyway, and a huge disruption that was happening pre-COVID, and certainly now I think is expedited. The move to streaming, for example, you see the number of subscribers Netflix has gained in such a short period of time, and it would have happened, right? They're the first to say. We're just up, we front loaded people that would have signed up, you know, no better time to do it rather than a pandemic. Then themselves have said, you know, we wish for the world to go back and we're, we're fine with not <laughs> attracting as many new subscribers if that means, you know, we kind of go back and people are healthy. But so things like that are obviously on a kind of higher level are seismic and they're happening quicker. They were going to happen, but they just happen much, much quicker. So, and you see the cancellations that are happening because of COVID and you see that the people not picking up or not buying as many shows as they are, or taking their time trying to figure out what audience they're going to watch and other things that we've been dealing with, you know, TikTok that was around, but it grew exponentially during COVID. And not just kids, right? But this entire population are using many, many hours of a day watching that, not watching kind of what we all produce. So these are all these are all a lot of changes that are happening in a condensed period of time over six months or nine months. Storytelling is changing, production's changing, budgets are changing. People are I saw there's like a headline, broadcasters are willing to take more risks now. I'm like, really? Who are they? Where are they? I haven't seen anyone really take any risk. Opposite. Everybody we talk to, and you come up with an idea or something that's going to take time, they're like, no, 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 we need to need to figure it out. And there's been so many changes to the industry, so many people losing their jobs, so many jobs made redundant, so much money that seems to have been sucked out, advertising revenue. It's just, it's not, you know, one thing. It's like a whole shift that is still happening. And it's kind of too soon to say where the ships are going to fall and what it's all going to look like. There's more questions than answers. And it's just, everything happened quickly. And I think the way you kind of look at it is just do one foot at the time. This is what I kind of realized when I went into this like shock. I realized that there's, you can't do anything now that's going to reinvent. You have to do what you do, do it better, do it quicker, and then figure it out. Because Within this turmoil, both personal, everybody was personally going through something. And as an industry, it's just too much to try to figure it all out. So you just, have, it's like one foot again in front of the other. You, you kind of try to pace yourself and first of all, finish what you've gotten, look at what you're doing, make sure that's still relevant. And then going ahead and developing, talk to people, see what they're doing, see what's working, see what's not, and try to figure out 
who are the ones that are going to be standing because everything we develop now is, you know, two years out. It's hard to imagine what the world will look like. Initially, I thought we'd all die, but now I'm optimistic. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it, it felt like doom and gloom for a second there, right? It was just yeah. like, and then like, no, we're, we're going to survive and people are still, you know, going to be entertained, maybe more so than before. And I'm kind of glad to be in television production and not in movies. I think there it's that we get pitched movies all the time. And I'm just, this is not, this is not the time. And we were never producing films, but definitely not now. Unless it's a great romantic comedy for Netflix, I I wouldn't try to make a film. Donna Stern from Yes Studios. UK broadcaster ITV recently aired a series of short films commissioned in response to rising racial tensions in the US and around the world. Four-part anthology series Unsaid Stories came from independent producer Greenacre Films and starred, among others, Nicholas Pinnock, Joe Cole and Yasmin Monet-Prince. Greenacre co-founders and exec producers Nadine Marsh-Edwards and Amanda Jenks spoke with Inigo Alexander ahead of transmission about the show which is still available via the ITV Hub on demand service. One is called Generational, which is about a father having a conversation with his daughter who he catches leaving the house. Uh, at first he thinks she's going to a party, but then he realises she's going to a Black Lives Matter march. And he isn't comfortable with her doing that. And during the course of the conversation, she finds out why he isn't comfortable. And it's due to something that happened in his past. So that's one. Another one is called Look At Me. And it's about a young black professional couple who have been going out for a little while. And they meet up to go out for the night for a meal. They leave the house and then they return to the house not long later. And what we discover is that they've been stopped by the police in the car. And it's about the aftermath of what that stopping by the police does to them and their relationships. And again, that brings up incidents from the past for both of them. And uh, the, the third one is called I Don't Want to Talk About This. Um, it's written by Anna Sesamyama and directed by Kobe Adom. And it's It's a very moving little film, actually. It's gorgeous. It's about a couple who bump into each other at a barbecue. And uh, she's a professional uh, middle-class black woman. He's a working-class white boy. And they had a a relationship, previous relationship. They haven't seen each other since. And it's first of all, it's uncomfortable um, because he's obviously still besotted with her and they were very in love at one point. But then they start to talk about really what the external pressures on that relationship were to do with class, race, etc. And really what got in the way. And it kind of ends with a bittersweet moment of could this couple have actually been together, but fate dictated that they couldn't. So it's very moving. It's lovely, actually. And then um, A Lavender is written by Nicole Leckie, directed by Atosha Hilton. And uh, it's a story about a mother-daughter relationship. The daughter is mixed race and the mother is white. And it's to do with the fact that the daughter's had a baby uh, with a black guy. The baby's quite dark and the mother makes a throwaway comment, not realising the impact uh, of what she's saying to her daughter. And so they have a conversation, they start to unpack. Uh, what that means and they come to 
a very close position at the end, but it's about how they unpack and explore that. So the projects are all obviously tied to the Black Lives Matter movement that's you know really gained international importance over the last couple of months. So how did the, the commission itself come about? Were these projects that you were looking to get off the ground before the BLM movement picked up or were they more catering to the, the increased demand in uh, Black Lives Matter content and uh, content that allows to create a discussion around diversity and race? Um, it was kind of none of those Actually, I mean, us as a company at Greenacre, all of our works make sure that diversity is at its core. We aim to represent the world we see around us, which is very diverse. So a lot of the people we work with are working on projects that feel very authentic. And I think, you know, this project came about because, you know, we were sitting at home working, developing projects. You know, a pandemic has hit the world I think, and in the, more or less within the same week, it came out that black people were dying at a greater rate than white people due to COVID-19. So that was a big body blow for us to, to see that happening and try and understand why that was happening and, and acknowledging that it's not to do necessarily with our, our skin colour, it's to do with the jobs we do, it's to do with the nutrition some people have, it's to do with where and how we live. So that was one thing going on. And then we had the murder of George Floyd go on, you know, in real time, in front of your eyes. Um, personally, I've never actually watched that video all the way through. I just can't. It's just too intense. But if you're sitting at home and you've got time to, to think about what's happening in the world, we just thought we need to say something about this. We need to try and find a platform to tell some of the stories about the emotions that affect people when they decide to go on a march, when they decide to protest. Obviously, in America, George Floyd and the other murders that were happening that those few weeks, it was quite an intense period, murders of black people by police or, or right-wing people. So we just put a, we put a call out. We, we first of all contacted ITV to say, look, we'd really like to do something. We'd really like to say something. We think there's a lot that could be said by, you know, the black creative people we know. ITV said, yes, super, super fast. So then we put a call out to writers who we know and said, look, we know you're all really, really busy, but we've got an opportunity here to highlight some of the stories that we all talk about with each other that maybe a general public may only know a little bit about or may not know anything about at all. So we put the call out. We had a fantastic response. It wasn't a wide call out. We didn't go online and, and offer up an opportunity. There wasn't time for that because the turnaround was so fast. I think this is from beginning to end happened in four and a half weeks, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, from the idea to TX, four and a half weeks. So we put the call out, people came back with ideas. Between us and ITV, we chose the four that we thought were a good spread and a good representation of some of the feelings that people are experiencing at the moment. Obviously not all, we can't represent everybody and everything, but some of them said yes, they wrote them, they've been writing them as we've been crewing and casting. And uh, we've just had such a fantastic response from creative people in the industry behind the scenes and in front of camera. And obviously you mentioned there that it was quite a quick turnaround. I think four weeks you mentioned from commission to... Four and a half, yeah. Four and a half, yeah. So obviously a much quicker turnaround than usual. And on top of that, we're not currently operating under this traditional circumstance. Everyone's, you know, remote working, working from home for ages now. So how was the development process 
How, how did that come about? How did you change it to make sure you could meet that faster turnaround? You know, we did have, you know, something slightly on our side in that ITV had done isolation stories. So on a practical level, we knew it could be achieved remotely. But um, we surrounded ourselves with people that know how to do this. We've got, you know, fantastic technicians and all the directors you know, just have, have kind of embraced it. But we've had to work under very strict COVID protocols. You know, we have supervisors on set and everything is done remotely. Um, rushes are uploaded. But I mean, you know, there it is one of those things that you have got to just embrace and go with. You know, I think it would be very difficult to sustain this for a huge amount of time. But obviously everyone's working it out every every day. Um, and I think the, the protocols are changing every day. But, you know, we've made sure we've run a really safe set. And it's been quite interesting, actually, having us all on Zoom, watching scenes, having directors direct remotely from their own homes. I mean, they could literally be anywhere in the country, which is quite a weird thought. It just shows what can be done remotely. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest, without the production team that we've got, you know, without them and, you know, them being able to coordinate everything as fantastically as they have, I don't know how you could do this. The actors are just really thrown themselves into it. It's been amazing. Everyone involved has just really turned the dial up to help make this happen. Nadine Marsh-Edwards and Amanda Jenks from Greenacre Films. US industry veteran Jean George established and led the worldwide distribution arm of Stars for almost a decade, continuing with the business after its merger with Lionsgate. Last year, however, he launched his own firm, Tessera Entertainment, with a focus on distributing TV movies and series. He spoke with Karolina Kaminska about strategy and how he hopes to expand the business. The name of the company was was given because, you know, my background is Greek Cypriot and um, Tessera is the number four in Greek, which is, you know, homage to the four children that I have. And also Tessera, Tessera in Italian, spelled slightly different, but in Italian is a single mosaic tile. And I kind of look at that as a symbolic meaning of what my company kind of represents. I'm kind of a small mosaic tile and a grand piece of art, but without that one little last remaining piece to really complete it. It's not, you know, a full piece of work. So that's why I kind of look at it from a symbolic nature of what my company is and why it's named that. And also, you know, again, playing homage to my, uh, to my four children. I started the company last July, primarily with the focus um, to uh, do pre-sales for some of my producers that I've dealt with over the years um, during my time at, at Stars and Lionsgate to distribute their television movies internationally. And, um, you know, I, through the course of the summer and fall, going into the into the fall and winter season with the with the incredible amount of production that's being done on original Christmas movies, I managed to pick up international distribution rights to about ten films, um, mostly all of which are Christmas movies. So, you know, I think I think the primary focus of the company is to concentrate on television content, and uh, you know, the primary focus is on television movies and also series. Um, series obviously are a little more challenging to acquire uh, as an independent company, especially with many networks around the world retaining broader amount of rights. But there are still some uh, platforms in the U.S., some cable networks specifically, that are still willing to um, you know, partner with you in terms of um, distribution for companies like ours to have international and them to retain the, the U.S. broadcast rights. So we're looking at opportunities there. But you know, right now, the focus is on television movies, and it's primarily in very specific categories that are very consumable for traditionally the linear networks, a lot of daytime playable, some in prime time, but things like, uh, like the the Christmas movies, which is a big part of my slate, as I was saying, as well as things like uh, female thrillers, kind of action films, and even some romance, romantic comedy type of content. 
So you've mentioned um, linear platforms there. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of target target areas that you're focusing on with regards to platforms, broadcasters, and also areas of the world? Yeah, I think I think uh, historically for you know the TV movies, especially the, the the US network and cable TV movies, historically generate most of their income out of Europe. You know, there certainly are there opportunities around the world where uh, these TV movies are monetized, but you know, primarily in in countries like you know France. Italy, Spain, certain territories in in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, and out, outside of Europe, you know, we're looking at Latin America, we're looking at Australia, Canada. If um, the U.S. network doesn't have the Canadian rights as well, we monetize them pretty well in Canada. So our our focus is is though primarily you know in Europe, and um, you know we do focus on that quite a bit. And as I said, you know, we target genres that are very specific and focused to the needs of, of most of the traditional linear networks. Can you talk about how demand for TV movies has changed? in the age of of OTT because there was a time when TV movies were really popular with audiences and then the popularity declined somewhat in the face of competition from big budget blockbusters and the cinemas and people started regarding films uh, made for TV as, as sort of cheaper more inferior alternatives how how are you seeing that changing now with the vast amount of ways that people can now watch TV and consume content yeah no I think I think uh, you know there still is a, quite a demand for TV movies around the world I mean obviously there's been you know some changes certainly with what's going on in the world right now with um, COVID. But, you know, I, I certainly haven't seen much of a drop in demand from the traditional linear networks for the type of TV movies that we're involved in. You know, we focus, we're focused very much on our movies all have U.S. networks attached and they're networks that specialize in these, this type of content like Hallmark and Lifetime uh, and so forth. So, you know, when we're licensing this content internationally and knowing that the U.S. network is attached, it does help a lot of the linear networks to understand what the movie really is, and it helps them have a better clarity on what um, what they're acquiring. You know, if they if they know it's a, a movie that's being produced for Hallmark, they have an understanding of what the you know the demographic. Uh, might be what kind of production values and cast might be attributed to that project, what kind of social media campaign and marketing backing a network in the U.S. might give it, which might transcend into the international marketplace, which might help them. So, you know, we certainly, as part of our strategy, try to only acquire and distribute content that already has that U.S. network attached. I mean, so far, I've been able to do that. I'm not sure how much longer that can last as I look to continue to feed the, the product flow for the for the company. But, you know, all the movies that we have right now on our slate have U.S. networks attached, so it's a lot easier for broadcast to understand what the movie is. And, um, you know, I think I think longer term in terms of demand, you know, to kind of get back to your question a little bit, certainly there's been fragmentation in the marketplace with a lot of these new platforms uh, launching. There still is a great home for these types of movies on the linear platforms. And I think they realize that. I think the concern is for, for me as I look forward into the future is that there's going to continue to be an increase in local production. Maybe what's going on now might even kind of accelerate that a little bit more. And with that increase in local production, you might see some of these traditional linear linear networks filling some of those slots that they historically had for television movies with some of their own locally produced content. So it's not so much that there's a lack of performance for these films. I think they always work well and it's the type of content that does travel well, but you might see some other things impact the the business more than just a a lack of demand or, you know, drop in ratings for these, for these movies, which I don't really feel like there is. And and what about on um, VOD platforms? Do you see these types of movies having a home there? Oh yeah, no, 
absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, Christmas movies, um, thrillers, you're, you're seeing a lot of these turn up on a lot of these, you know, subscription video on demand platforms, no doubt about it. You know, la- last year there was, I think, close to 120 original Christmas movies that were produced between all the networks. And there were quite a few that were produced by by platforms like Netflix and Disney Plus and so forth. So there are, there are certainly, um, you know, demand for the same kind of content from the OTT platforms. And you'll continue to see that. I mean, look, I mean, the, especially the the holiday movies are, you know, it's feel good escapist entertainment. People, people like to, um, you know, watch things that kind of take them away for a while. And, um, you know, you're, you, it's not limited to just a linear platform that can tap into that audience. And I think you're going to see a lot more of the OTT platforms you know, gravitate to content like that. And how has business been in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic? Pretty much when everything was locked down in March, April and May, it typically is not historically when most of the the, the networks are focused on their holiday program. I mean, we have, you know, there's some that you deal with that are already kind of focused on their holiday slate from January and February. But, you know, for the most part, we, we would historically talk to a lot of the buyers about the Christmas content that was coming at the LA screenings. And then we would kind of, kind of kick it off then. And then a lot of our deals would be done from that point on through June and July before the break, the holiday break. So right now we're in the middle of it. So, you know, during during the COVID kind of lockdown where people were not focused at all, it, it didn't really impact my business that much. You know, now, now the impact of the business is just that, you know, a lot, a lot of the traditional buyers are kind of relooking what their acquisition budgets are for the, for the holiday season. You know, their ratings, their ratings, even though people are home have gone up a little bit, but you know, their ad revenue is, is down. Some of that is transitioning to the digital platforms. So as they're, you know, showing a decrease in ad revenue, I think they're looking to ways that they can offset that. And certainly, you know, we're starting to see that some acquisition budgets are either being cut or buyers are relooking to repurpose and use as much of the content that they already have to, you know, fill the gaps for the upcoming, you know, seasons. You know, the networks in the US, they're they're airing 30 to 40 Christmas movies, original Christmas movies each year. And, you know, there, there's a huge demand for these movies, not only in the US, but but throughout the world. So, you know, the, the goal really for us is just to have a, a slate that represents some of the best of the best in that in that holiday programming across a variety of platforms. And um, most of most of what we're doing now is is really more adult theme and romance themed. It's not really family, you know, it's not it's not Christmas movies with dogs, you know, which is something that you know we used to do quite a bit of years ago. But you know, now now the kind of desire and the trend is really more of that kind of romance kind of Christmas story. And that's where our, our slate is focused on. That's where I think most of the the networks and the ratings are being driven by that kind of a, of a holiday film. Tessera Entertainment founder Gene George. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>